Today is our 10th and final version, uh, sermon in this series, and I think as a pastor, it's, it's maybe like my favorite, because it really, it's something that I would just, I'd just like to sit with each of you and, and talk about this, and we've talked about all these ways that we can be different, and I hope it's had as much of an impact on you as it's had on me. Uh, sometimes it's hard, you know, if you don't have any big sins in your life, and you're reading the Bible and praying to know how you can be different, what your life can be like, because you're a Christian, and in a way that other people's lives just simply can't be like. And this sermon, I think, is a, is a great finishing piece. It's like James doesn't have a conclusion. He just launches into his tenth thing. This is how you can be different, and he'll stop. But I think it's probably strategic that it's here at the end because it, it, it's in all and, and through all of the things that we've already talked about. I think that what we'll see today is just radically important if we're going to live out the other nine things that we've seen in the book of James. And here's what James is going to say to us. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we should be different in prayer. Now, you know people that are outside of Christianity. You know people that aren't followers of Jesus. And one thing that you hear a lot from people who aren't Christians, who who don't love Jesus, who don't serve Jesus, who don't follow Jesus, one thing you hear quite a bit is like this, I pray and stuff. You ever heard that before? They're like, hey, come to church with me. I'm inviting you to my Easter service. And they say, well, I pray and stuff. We don't really know what the stuff is. I'm not sure they know what the stuff is, but it sounds better to have two things going for your spiritual life than one, right? And and it's just like this this mindset, I pray and stuff. And, And people that say this to you probably do pray. They probably spend some time in prayer every now and then when things are going bad or when things are going well, depending on who they are, to stop and take a moment and and pray something. And here, I think, is what we're going to see in this last sermon of this series is that our prayers should sound different than their prayers, now, if you think about this, I just I, I would I would like to be able to bug your houses and just find out, just put your things down, and if you pray, uh, I would like to be able to hear the things that you're praying about, and and then I would really have a great illustration. I could play it up here, you know, and go to jail, but it'll be one swan shot, send off, uh, goodbye, that was my last sermon, I'm going to be in prison for a while, but now you got my point, right? <coughs> and And I think, just my guess... And if I could bug your house and I could bug my people who don't love, serve, follow, go to church, uh, Jesus, go to church. If I could bug their house as well and, and I could hear their prayers, people praying out loud. My guess is that it would sound very similar. I'm guessing that, that you would probably say like, God, thank you for this, this and this. And then you would say, God, I need this, this and this. And that would be kind of the extent of, of, of a lot of people's prayer lives. In fact, one of the things that you hear when people, I've talked about this a lot in the sermon series, like, I should read the Bible and pray more, right? And, and people say that. And, and then you'll hear about the Bible, you'll hear like, well, I just don't understand parts, and so that's why I don't read it more. I just don't really get it. And when you teach it, Chad, then I get it. But when I'm sitting there alone and I read, I don't really get it. And that's kind of a stopping point for a lot of people when it comes to prayer, uh, when it comes to reading the Bible. But with prayer, one of the things that I hear, one of the things that I have heard, and it's interesting, is I just don't know what else to pray. It's hard for me to pray more than five minutes because I'm kind of out of stuff. I'm out of content. I don't know what else I should say. And it's a very telling thing for people to tell me or to say to other Christians because it says your prayers are probably just like people's who aren't Christians. You say like, God, I'm thankful that I have a house and some food and I... I'm thankful that for my children or for my parents or for my friends. And God, I would like to have you know, a better job and some more money. And can you fix that one thing that's going on? And that's it, God. I don't know what else to say to you. And the fact that this kind of thinking even exists, I don't know what else to pray about, suggests that what we're going to see in James 
needs to be heard. It suggests to me that probably we're not paying attention to the very end of James because if you pay attention to what James is going to say in this last part of his book, then you would never have enough time to pray for all the things that you should be praying for. You see, James is going to radically shift how we pray, the things that we say in our prayer. Now, we may, we still will, hopefully, include, God, thank you for this, and I need this. But he is going to add a major component that you are not going to find in people who aren't Christians. He's going to say, look, you can be just radically different in the way you pray because of what I'm about to tell to you. He begins, James 5, 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Now, right up front, verse 13, first thing James says is not, notice this, pray that your difficulties will go away. He doesn't say that. He says, if you are in trouble, pray. And it seems to suggest uh, the language of this, not that you're praying that everything will just get magically better, but you're praying for strength, that God will work in your life in the midst of it, that he will help you stay faithful in all the things we've seen in James, like have a good attitude and live out your faith and, and go through trials with a sense of joy because you know what God is doing. The, the language seems to suggest that when bad things happen, James is saying, continue to ask God to help you to do the things that you need to do and the other part is and this one maybe is easier but is anyone happy let them sing songs of praise again it doesn't suggest that everything is good and perfect in your life it just suggests that God is has done something in you so that you're joyful so that you have a sense of comfort and well-being despite the circumstances going on around you. Again, James is talking to a group of people who have a lot of bad stuff going on. They're poor, they're broke, things are not going so well. Uh, James is being persecuted, their leader of their church. I mean, imagine if I was like being persecuted, people were trying to shut me up every week. That's a big thing to deal with for a congregation. And yet, James says, some of you are going to be happy. Some of you are going to experience a, a level of joy and, and happiness. And so thank God for it. And right up front, just this is so this is so different than our world. I mean, this is so radically different, but it's so small and so simple. James says, if you feel bad on the inside or you feel good on the inside, turn towards God. I don't know how many of you remember the days that followed the bombings of the Twin Towers on September 11th. Uh, 15-ish years ago now, can you believe that? Uh, and, and it was like everybody, everybody in our nation all of a sudden was praying. It's like, wow, this is bad, and our economy's gonna tank, and we might be in a war, and, and now we'd never feel safe. Do you remember that feeling? Like, I don't know if I can go somewhere and, and feel safe anymore, and what's gonna happen to our travel, uh, and, and all this, like, is my family safe? Can I go to work, and should I send my kids to school? And everything just was bad, and we all felt bad and scared, and, and we felt, you know, hopefully at least a little bit sorry for what had happened in New York, but in large part, like, something happened inside of us where it, it kind of ruined our vision of, of what we are as a country and, and what, you know, we can be on a daily basis. And in those moments, people all around our country turned to God and they prayed. But you notice, 15 years later, that we don't have those same type of conversations about prayer anymore. Our lives have settled back in. They've gone back to normal in some ways. Our world will forever be changed. I understand that sociologically. But, but in some ways, like we're back to normal and, and we don't go to work scared anymore and we send our kids off to school and we think you're safe, no big deal. And, and we are pretty certain now with our security and, and how long it takes to go through the airport that, that we're not gonna have another plane crash into us and and we feel kind of this, this, uh, this, this solid foundation kind of build back up in our lives in our country. And what's happened? You don't hear mainstream media talking about prayer very often. In fact, prayer has become more and more offensive to people. You see, non-Christians will turn to God when things get really bad and sometimes when things get really good. But when things are one or the other, then depending on the person, they no longer turn to God. 
In Christian circles, I've seen this same thing to be true. People always want prayer. They ask for prayer. They remember to pray when life is terrible, when things are bad, when they're struggling, when the glass is not half full. But when things are good and perfect, then a lot of times they simply just go about their business. Oh, I'm too busy to pray. Oh, I'm having too much fun to pray. Oh, I, I, I just a lot going on right now and things are going good. I don't really need prayer. I don't think people would vocalize that, but I think somewhere inside of them, they think it. You have other people, and it seems like a minority, but they are the people that they're just not praying when things are bad. They're trying to fix things. They're trying to make things better. They're trying to get through the next day. They're trying to fill themselves up on other things besides God. But when things are great, they'll say, hey, God, thanks. I'm glad that that's worked. And James shows us here a defining characteristic of those of us who follow Jesus, who are trying to live out the word of God that's given to us in the Bible, a defining characteristic is that we should turn to God in all of our circumstances. If life is bad, if life is good, and I think James would add, if life is just kind of in the middle, you should turn to God in prayer. Isn't that good? That's, that's like, that could just be a sermon. I mean, a, a lot of you, I think you, your prayer lives are driven by your circumstances. Well, things are bad, I better pray. Or Things are great. I should probably thank God for it so it keeps coming. It's almost magical, isn't it? It's like, it's like uh, superstitious. It's like, well, I don't want to make God mad. I'll keep praying because things are going good. And James says, pray all the time. Paul says that elsewhere. Speaking the word of God, he says, pray without ceasing in a very famous passage of scripture and I think they have the same thing in mind pray whether life is good or life is bad whether life is indifferent or in the middle or whatever it might be turn to God he continues is anyone among you sick let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well the Lord will raise them up if they have sinned they will be forgiven I want to say up front that this passage is understood in a variety of ways. And, and, there, and I'm being, this is, this is serious. This is very serious. A lot of bad, very, very bad things, in my opinion, have been done because of this passage of Scripture. Actually, two weeks ago or three weeks ago after a sermon, someone in our congregation came up to me after the sermon and said, I, I had a friend. And they, I don't know, they must have had this passage in their mind, but it was a different passage I had preached on. I had a friend who I loved. I thought they were great. They had cancer. I prayed like I'd never prayed before that they would be healed and they died. Did that mean that I did not have enough faith? When you read this, I mean, is anyone among you sick? Let the elders be called. And so you bring the elders in. If you anoint the person with oil, and then it says the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Not might, not maybe, not could, not should, not, if you're lucky, I mean, will. And here's, I mean, I mean, and we don't we, like, there's, you see this in the news a lot, like, kids die because their parents don't take them to get medical treatment because, in large part, ding, ding, ding. James 5, 14, and 15. Well, like, if we just have enough faith, then God is going to heal the person. And here's, this is what you need to know. This is just so important. Uh, I like, the Bible is translated. It's in Greek originally, the Bible. Did you know that? Raise your hand if you knew that. Yeah, there you go. So the Bible was originally in Greek, and the Bible gets translated by people, human beings, from Greek into English so that we can read the Bible. That's a big deal. People fought for the right to have that happen hundreds of years ago. And, and, and so we get to read the Bible now. But here's the thing. This is a trick, and this is maybe like, maybe this is too much, and I, 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 this is not to discredit the Bible. This is, I just need you to understand this. In, in my Greek ability, which is an A, I am an A Greek student, uh, this is what I can tell you. If, again, if I ever tell you anything about Hebrew, then just be like, I don't know, I better go look it up on Google. But, uh, but Greek, I have an understanding of, I get it. And, and here's what you'll find, w with every language really, when you're, when you're trying to translate something from one language to another, there, there is no like perfect word all the time. Now, sometimes you'll find like the perfect word to translate, but sometimes you have to make a decision about the word that you're going to choose. That doesn't mean we discredit the Bible because let me be clear about this. It, it's not like that word could mean 
evil or good. It's not like that drastic. It's like that word could mean a dog or a wild dog, you know? And what am I going to put in here so that when English readers read it, then they're getting to the heart of it. And here's the great news in the history of Bible translations. Most men who have been uh, given the task by God to translate the Bible are godly, wonderful men who have done their best to get to the heart of what God is trying to say and trying to translate it in a way that is faithful to Scripture. And a lot of times people will ask, like, okay, what's, there's all these translations. What's my favorite? What's your favorite? I mean, that's a question. That you, what's your favorite translation? about? I say all of them. Read all of them. Read every one of them except for the New King James. I am not a fan of the New King James because it's not a translation. It's just an update. And that bothers me and annoys me. And I'd like to talk to the guy who did it. But, but all of them except for the New King James. If you're a New King James person, then forgive me. But uh, just donate it to Goodwill and go buy another one. Um, uh, and I'm not saying the old King James. I think those guys did their best. I'm saying the new one. Uh, uh, most men have done just, I mean, this is a painstaking task, and they've done their best to translate the Word of God in a way that gets to the heart and meaning of what God has said to us, to humanity. That's what we believe the Bible is. But the guys that did the NIV made a choice here that I think was wretched, to be honest with you, in my studies. And I'm, I'm, uh, I, th- I would call myself a minority on this issue, uh, but I'm not like a, a one-timer not minority. But this, there's two words that are really important here in this passage of Scripture uh, to understand what James is actually talking about, what God is trying to say to us. The first one is the word sick, and the second one is the word well. Okay, you with me? Is this all making sense? Is this too heady? Is this like something you didn't need? Okay, hopefully you're with me because it's really important for us not, you know, killing kids. Uh, and, and so here's the two words. The first word is the word sick. It's astheneo is the word. And it means to want strength. It's the most basic form. It means to be weak or ill or to be sick. Okay? Now, if you go back to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's where they talk about Jesus for a long time at the beginning of the New Testament in your Bibles, you'll find that most often this word is used for people's physical sickness. Like, Jesus saw a sick person and he made them well. You've read passages like that. If you've ever read the Bible, Jesus made a lot of sick people well. But when you get to the rest of the New Testament, what we would call the epistles, the letters, they either have a city name on them or they have a person's name on them. When you get to those, almost all of the time, this word is used in a spiritual sense, not for physical illness. In the word for the book of Acts, it also is for diseases or fever. But when you turn to the epistles, you see that it becomes this word that is about spiritual sickness. It's about something other than physical illness. Paul uses it, the word you read weak a lot in his letters, like I was weak, but God made me strong. Uh, I'm weak in my flesh. We see Paul use it a lot in that way uh, to say, look, spiritually speaking, I'm not everything that I want to be. I'm weak and I need the strength of Jesus. Obviously not speaking about something physical. He's talking about something Spiritual. Now, here's this is the other one because that may not have sold you that this is not talking about our physical ailments. But listen to this: the word for well, and I don't know how people miss this. I don't know how translators miss this, and they're way smarter than me. But somehow, this this is missed. The the word for well is the Greek word sozo, which is like as a Greek student, it's like one of the first words you'll ever learn because it's like it means saved, and it's that comes up a lot in the Bible, right? Like that's. Language we use a lot about becoming a Christian when we become Christians. We are saved by the grace of God. In John 3.17, right after John 3.16, what you've heard before, we read this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Are you seeing that maybe that's not a physical thing? I don't think that Jesus came to the world to make our cancer go away. I don't think Jesus came into the world to make heart attacks end. I don't think Jesus came to make high blood pressure better or to even 
in, a, in the long-term sense to heal leprosy like he did while he walked around on the earth. Jesus came, we know this from the entire Bible, to save us from our sins, to remove our sins so that someday we might go to heaven and, and live in eternity with God in perfection and all of that greatness. The word can be used for physical healing, but in the epistles, the rest of the New Testament, it's most often referring to something that is spiritual. It means to like make sound, to save. It means to preserve, safe for danger. It means, uh, or, or loss or destruction. In a Christian sense, it's to save from death and from judgment. You see, the translators have made you think that if you have enough faith, then every person who has a cough can have it go away. But what James is getting at when you actually know what these words mean is that a prayer made in faith has the power to fix a person who is spiritually weak, who is spiritually sinful, who is spiritually struggling. I mean, in James, listen to how else, I don't know how they missed this. It just, I don't know how they missed it. In James, listen to how he uses this so-so word. It's very important. Uh, and I actually want you to vote. I want you to vote. Raise, raise a number one if you think it's spiritual and a number two if you think it's physical. There was some placement there because I, I think that the second one's not as good. Ready? Okay, James 1.21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. If you think that's spiritual sounding, put up a one. If you think it's physical, put up a two. Come on, everybody now. Good. Good. Okay, so we, we're voting and we're shooting down the, the NIV people. Uh, James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Put up a one if you think that if you, you know this because Matt's already preached on this passage and you weren't paying attention if you don't have a one up right now. Okay, James 4.12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? One or two. Put them up nice and high. Okay, I, so far one is winning. James 5.20, remember this, and this is just in a couple verses. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the air of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Put up a one or two based on what you think, and that one would be harder if we hadn't seen all the others. You see what I'm saying here? I'm right and they're wrong. This is obviously uh, about spiritual things. And what James is saying is not like if you have enough faith, if you just believe enough, if you just, God's gonna do it, God's gonna do it. If you, I mean, and the way it's used, like if you just declare it and say, God, you will heal. If you just talk God into it, then he's gonna fix every person with cancer and every person with AIDS and, and every person with Ebola and every person that's struggling physically. What James is saying is not. The prayer made in faith will help, will fix will mend the person who is spiritually weak and struggling. In our book, as you've gone through it, I mean, we've seen all these ways that we can be different. In trials, we can be different in our religion as we practice the word of God. We can be different in our relationships as we treat people uh, how they need to be treated, not, how, uh, not what, for what we can get out of them. We're different in our faith because we practice what we preach again. We're different in speech because we control our tongue. We're different in wisdom as God is served first and ourselves second or not at all. We're different in desire as we find our fulfillment in God and not in others. We're different in planning because we are seeking the will of God and not just what's going to be good for us and our bank accounts. We're different in attitude because we have a good attitude knowing that ultimately our cup will overflow if you heard the sermon last week and you say I can't do all that and we know people who are like I just I have a bad attitude and I want to change and you know my speech is bad and and we have other people that, that are not even those things like they're addicted and they're tired of fighting have you ever met somebody who's just like fighting the fight for Jesus but it's just wearing on them and they don't think they can do it anymore and we have people who are apathetic and, and what James is saying is that the the prayer made in faith will help these people return to a place where they are living their lives for God now, there's some specific instructions here. Are you with me? Because this is just, this is not like a normal sermon. There's no props. This is just like my heart to you and, and a little bit my brain to you because I think it's important that we understand kind of what's happening here. And, and, and so, are you with me? Yeah? 
Two of you, that's good. Um, so the rest of you, you can listen again later online uh, on the website, but, but it, hopefully you're kind of tracking with me. James says specifically that this is what should happen. If somebody is spiritually weak, if they're struggling, if they feel like they're at the end of their rope, as we talked about last week with the attitude, then what they should do is that they should go get the elders of the church and the elders should anoint them with oil and pray over them. This is something that I think we need to institute in our church. It's happened one time when I've been in the church. Uh, One time it happened. Uh, We anointed somebody with oil. We didn't really know what that means. We don't come from a charismatic background. It was like, where do you get the oil? I mean, what kind of oil? I mean, do we splatter it? Do we rub it on their foreheads? Does it have to be on their foreheads? Because it doesn't say that anywhere. I mean, a lot of confusion, but we got the job done. Uh, And what we did is we put a little oil on their heads, and then the elders of the church prayed for this person because they had come to kind of the end of their rope spiritually. They were fighting. They were trying to live for God. And it was becoming difficult for them. Where I'd like to see this go, if you want me to just see how uh, I think it can be practiced here. Again, my kind of head and my kind of heart to you this morning. Uh, I think that in that room right over there, our elders should be sitting waiting after service. And I think that, that when, you, when you are spiritually just struggling... Uh, not like every time you sin, because I don't have that much time in my life, but like, uh, you know, like, you know, Chad, I did it again. Let's get the oil out. We'll run out of oil. We don't have that big of a budget. Uh, but, but I think that when you're just like, look, I'm, I'm trying to break this addiction. I'm trying to get out of this sin. I'm trying to, I'm, I, I just feel like I'm done. I can't have a good attitude anymore. I can't, I can't find any joy in this trial. It's, I'm just... Then, then we should have people ready, willing to pray for you, and maybe not just the elders, as we'll see in a moment. And, and so we may, that's going to come up at our next meeting. Uh, we can put that on the agenda now, Vic, um, and, and we'll, we'll discuss how we can implement that. But this is, this is kind of the point here, is when your strength is sapped, when you're trying to fight the good fight, as Paul declares, but you just don't think you can do it anymore, you seek out the elders in a church. For us, that's the leadership of our church, and you have them pray for you. Now, I know you want to know why the anointing with oil. I have no good idea. I studied it. I don't really know. Some people think, and this is people that translate this passage differently, that it actually had medicinal purposes. So it was like, you know, like massage oil or whatever, and it could actually fix you. It was you know, primitive medicine or whatever. I think it's more connected to kind of a, a ritual, uh, a ritual that, that says in some ways, God, we're recognizing that this is not because of the elders, the people praying, but this is because of you and the work that you'll do in, in these people's lives. And that's in fact what James says next. He says the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. Doesn't that sound spiritual again? I mean, the Lord will, the Lord will raise them up And if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. But all of that is done in the name of the Lord. It's not the oil that matters. It's not the elders that matter. It's the Lord that matters in this equation. Now, this last part is also a little bit tricky. Um, If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. It seems to suggest, and I don't think this, but, but if you just read it really quick, it seems to suggest that part of having your sins removed is going to the elders of your church and saying, I'm, I need prayer. But really what I think is transpiring based on the reading of the rest of Scripture is that in this moment, there is a confession of sin that is being made. And, and the Bible makes pretty clear that when we confess our sins, God will forgive us for our sins. And so what I think is transpiring in this moment is that what James is saying, what God is saying through James is if you go to your elders and the problem is sin, it's not I'm tired, I'm broken, I'm hurting, I'm struggling, I need help financially. It is something that is sinful. You have a sin in your life. If you go and you say, here's the deal, I'm sinning, I don't want to be anymore, will you pray over me? Then it is an act of confession. Sure, you're saying it to people, but you're admitting I'm sinning and God will then forgive you for your sins. So this is, this is what you need to know. I mean, we have these, these cards every week where you, I say, like drop them in the offering basket if you need prayer for anything. Like here's some rationalization for that. Here is like, look, don't sit there and say, I don't want these people to know my prayers. Say like, I need prayer. I need it. 
this sermon really told me that I need prayer or I, the, whatever happened this week told me that I need prayer or, you know, I mean, fill in the blank. It, just say, look, I need prayer. And if it's serious, then this is what I give you permission to do when we're done here in a few moments, maybe a few more moments than a few moments. But uh, when we're done, then, then you can write on there like, I'm at the wit's end. I want the elders to pray over me. And we will make that happen for you. So just write that right down because we want to be faithful to what the word of God says. And in some ways, this doesn't fit like, you know, our denominational history. It feels a little weird to us. And I think sometimes in our, in our kind of background as, you know, people who don't put their hands up and things like that, to ask for prayer at all becomes kind of like a weird thing. But James is saying it's really, really important. And then he says this other thing that you're just not going to like this. I mean, if that was nice, I go to an elder, I get some prayer. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It's like James takes a step back and he says, oh, by the way, Perhaps before you go talk to the elders, let me just tell you how the culture of your church should be. Let me just explain to you what your participation in Christianity should look like. You, if you really believe in the prayer's power, in the power of prayer, should be confessing your sins to one another. That's, that's, that's wretched sounding. Nobody likes that. Nobody. I mean, write instantly. You're like, oh boy, he's not going to ask me to write that on the card, is he? I mean, like that's uncomfortable. Now we've just, we've crossed a line here. I'm an American. Uh, You know, I mean, that's uncomfortable. Let me say this. It's commanded, first of all. So you should make this a part of your spiritual life, confessing your sins to one another. Confessing your sins to God, yes, but confessing your sins to one another, as well. But here's something else that, I, that I've pushed, and you maybe have heard me talk about this, but I think it's worth saying all the time. You should have such strong Christian relationships that confessing sin to one another doesn't feel like an outrageous idea. I can look out at our congregation right now, I can see a handful of people And I'm the pastor. It's hardest for the pastor sometimes. And I hear these stories about pastors who can't say anything to anybody because they're scared that they'll get thrown under the bus and then they won't be held on a pedestal too late for that. Uh, You know, and like, I hear these stories, but I look out right now, see a handful of people that I could tell any of my sins to. And it's not because we've put into our church structure accountability partners. I, man, I think I tried an accountability partner once and nobody wants to see anybody after about two weeks. Like you, that's, you want to ruin a friendship, get an accountability partner. Um, if you need an accountability partner, get one, just maybe pick somebody who's not a friend. Um, and somebody you don't like, and (laughs) that could work out. But, but like uh, these relationships that I have with people in our church are, are just so strong and so real and, and, and they are so spiritual anyway that it's not like a thing for me to be able to say like hey I'm doing this and I shouldn't be it comes up in conversations sometimes with some of the people in this church one-on-one conversations obviously but like things will actually just come up and it's not like we showed up we said hey let's get coffee so we can just pour out our sins it's just a natural extension of having godly relationships and I'm telling you this straightforward if you don't have those types of relationships then you are not living out the Christian faith in the way that you should be living out the Christian faith you say how do I get them good question one You come to our connection course that's happening right after Easter. I'm going to give my little plug here because I think it's important. I will talk to you about what your involvement in church should look like. It's the best thing that I do, this course. I wish the whole world could hear it, at least America, because there's just so many misconceptions about church and and what church should look like. Two, you get into a connect group where you can start to meet people and, and say, look, I have some things in common with you. Things come up. It's not a giant confessional of sin. Maybe that's why you're not in one because you pictured a giant confessional of sin. Here's three. You say to a person in your connect group, let's have coffee. 
You go have coffee. You start to hang out. You try to talk about spiritual things. I'm not saying you just go, look, here's the deal. I'm, I'm a dirty liar, you know? I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm saying you have coffee. You talk about spiritual things. I thought Chad's sermon sucked Sunday. I thought it was really good. How are you applying it to your life? Whatever you need to say, you'd start to build some type of spiritual foundation in a relationship that doesn't look like every other relationship that non-Christians have. You don't sit around and just talk about sports. You might. That's a great icebreaker. You don't just sit around and talk about movies. That's a great place to start, but that's not where you finish. You talk about spiritual things. Eventually, as the years go on, you can look the person in the eye and say, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm struggling with. I need your prayer. And you won't sit there and go, this is horribly awkward because you know that they're in it with you already. I just heard this great thing the other day about relationships and about how community really takes place. And I don't remember exactly how it went. I tried to find it online and I couldn't find it. Uh, it was at the conference I was at a couple weeks ago. But basically he was saying that there's, there's several aspects to like deep relationships and being able to, to talk to each other about sin and, and point each other's sins out and confess each other's sins. And he said you have to be with the person first. And obviously, right? I mean, that's the coffee that I'm talking about. And then, actually, I think he said you have to go to the person first, and then you have to be with the person. Uh, so you go to them, you make the approach, you're, you're with them, you're, you're in their lives, you're a part of their lives, you're hanging out. And then the final step, and this takes some time to develop, is, is that you have to show a person that you're for them. You have to show a person that you're for them and not against them. You see, if you walk up to somebody off the street and you say, hey, you got a bunch of sin in your life and you need to fix it, they go, you just don't like me. I mean, you just don't like me. You don't think I'm cool. It's the same with inviting somebody to church or trying to lead somebody to Jesus. If they don't know that you're for them, they're going to be like, they're just for their church. They just want to build up their church. Why? I'm not going to be part of their you know, master plan or their five-year plan or whatever. But if they know you're for them, then it changes the relationship. And so many of you in our congregation need to take this step. You need to say, look, okay, here it is, ready? I come to church, I know these people, you know, I'm, I'm with these people maybe even, we hang out sometimes, but now you need to deepen the conversation, you need to show the person that you're for them, and, and you need to find a person who's for you, because that's a big deal, right? If you're going to confess sins, you need to know that a person is for you and not against you, and if you don't have Christian relationships where you understand people are for you, and you can say anything to them and they'll still be for you, then you don't have the type of relationships that the Bible talks about when it talks about the Christian faith. At this church, we have four, four words that are our tagline. Believe, gather, connect, and serve. We want to help people believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We want to, we want to have people gather in the presence of God in a way that is impactful. And the third one, it's big. It's not... And it's, just as big as you showing up here on Sunday, is that we want people to connect in relationships that make like confession of sin and calling each other out on sin natural. And if you go, I can't even fathom a relationship where I couldn't naturally. It's not, I'm not saying like it's easy, like, hey, here's what I'm doing. It's fun. I, that never, that's never been fun for me. But, but like I, you can't say it. And it's not like this is weird, you know? I mean, like if you don't have that type of relationship, if you think that's so foreign and that's something that you can never achieve, then you're not, then you're not currently living out the Christian faith the way that the Christian faith should be lived out. Let me just, one more thing before I move on because he, he continues and it's so good and I'm running out of time quickly, but, but Connect Group isn't the answer. I want to make that clear. I gave my pitch. We've set that up because we find that people never get to know each other in any type of spiritual way uh, if, if we don't do something about it. And I'm not a big program guy. It's kind of my generation. Programs are for the older generation of church and now we just... You know, we're people-driven or we're missional or whatever the buzz line is for the week in these young Christian whippersnapper pastors <laughs> language, right? Uh, but we've programmed it because we think it's such a big deal that you just take the first step and say, I'm going to be with you. And hopefully you'll find people that you can be for and they can be for you. It's not about a group. It's not about what our church does is it's about us being a real church that lives out things in a godly way. And here's the good news. You confess your sins to each other and then hopefully, this is important, you actually pray for each other in good times and in bad so that you may be healed. 
Because, listen to what James says here, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. A righteous person is a person who has a right relationship with God that begins when we become a Christian. And we say, Jesus, I accept that you died on a cross. You rose again. I believe that. And I am calling you my Lord and Savior forevermore. That's when righteousness starts. It continues as people strive to have a good relationship with God by being obedient to his word and his spirit that comes and dwells inside of them. Now, when you're finding somebody that's for you, I would recommend finding somebody who fits those two things. That doesn't mean they're perfect because that, you're going to be looking for a long time. Uh, I mean, it doesn't mean they're perfect. It doesn't mean they have it all figured out. It means that they are a Christian person who has given their life to Jesus. And it means they are a person who are doing their best to live out the faith that God has called them to. You find one of those people who are for you, you confess your sins to them and they pray for you and and here's what James is telling us, then you will have a better spiritual life. Your weakness will turn to strength, your sickness will turn to health, your sin will turn into righteousness and fruit for God. Isn't that rad? I mean, that's just so good. And this is what I'm always trying to get at. I always am wrestling, if you just, again, my head, my heart to you this morning. Like, it's always this, this like, tension between, like, we have to do church in a way, in some way, that the people we have are at least a little bit comfortable with it, um, and that people can come in and feel like, at least, like, it's normal, right? But at the same time, we see these commands that are so important to the heart of what church is that, that are just so foreign to us, like confessing sin and praying for each other, but they're such a big deal. And maybe next week we'll just lead out, have a five-minute period with the band strumming, and we'll say, confess your sins to one another. Oh, that's uncomfortable, right? We're not going to do that. (laughs) We're not going to do that, but I'm not going to do it because I'm relying on you to take steps to make it happen in your life and in your church. Right, because I think in some ways a church with two people who are confessing to each other is better than a whole bunch of people, a thousand people that are not willing to get down to the nitty gritty and just show up to sing a few songs together. That's a big deal. He continues, because you might not believe him, right? You go, well, I'm just a human being. My prayers aren't going to matter. I mean, really, if somebody comes up to me and says, I have a serious addiction. I am a liar. I look at pornography. I, uh, I don't treat my wife well. I steal. I break all the Ten Commandments. I mean, if somebody comes up to you and says that, and you're like, okay, well, I think I'm righteous. Not self-righteous. Righteous because of the blood of Christ. I'll pray for them, but will it really help? Here's what James says. It's a pretty powerful example. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. Whoa. Like, I could probably get somebody to stop lying, you know? I mean, if he can make rain happen and not happen. And here's what you need to know about Elijah. He's in the Bible. I mean, he had to be better than me in some ways. Uh, The Bible tells us that Elijah was hungry. Pretty normal. He was afraid. He was depressed. And he was even a little bit of a whiner. But yet, James is telling us that when he prayed, God stopped the rain. And when he prayed, God sent the rain. You can read the story. It leaves out the part about Elijah praying in the Old Testament. But in 1 Kings 17... You go back there and you read and say, this was the response of God to prayer, then my prayers also can be both powerful and effective. And then he says this major thing that makes it just, this is so important. And this is like, this is just such a big deal for church and what it means and the Christian faith and something that I look around, it's just being totally ignored. You go to like, church stuff and you hear how you should do a church or you read a church book this is because i'm gonna write a book someday you read a church book it's basically like how to get more people in your doors that's pretty much it here you be a simple church or a sticky church or you be uh, a missional church or you be a purpose-driven church or you be you know there's stick an adjective in front of it and people will come and everything will be kind of cool but what you don't hear about is is things like this because but they're so important listen to what he says my brothers and sisters if one of you should wander from the truth 
And someone should bring that person back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the air of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. He says, do you wanna know why this is a big deal? Do you wanna know why you need to be confessing sins to one another, calling each other out in sins that are unconfessed, praying for each other? It's because you can help somebody that's wandering from the faith come back to the faith. One more point of controversy here. Some people will say, well, you know, this seems to suggest that you could lose your salvation once you have become a Christian. You could unbecome a Christian. Other people will say, it obviously says that, you know? I mean, it obviously says that you can give up your salvation and no longer be a Christian. It becomes this point of controversy. Can I lose my salvation or not? And, and this is something I used to spend lots of baseball bus rides when you go to a Christian university. This happens, arguing about. Here's what I know based on what the Bible says. I've stopped arguing because of this. If a person is not a Christian, they're not a Christian. Profound. I've solved like thousand year old argument. It doesn't really matter if they once were actually a Christian and they've given it up or if they weren't actually a Christian and have given it up. The Bible is quite clear. If somebody is not following Jesus, no matter what they professed at one point in time, then they are not a Christian and they are destined for an eternity in hell. That's what the Bible says over and over and over again in different ways. Now, you go, either side you're on, you're mad at me right now. I know, I can see your eyeballs. Uh, see my uncle's eyes back there, like, come on now. But, but it doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, we fight, I mean, really what people fight over, theologians, very smart human beings, fight over, well, they never really were a Christian, or yes, they were, and they gave it up. Both of you are saying the same thing. They're not Christians. They're not Christians if they're not Christians. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus, no matter what's happened in the past. Whether you gave it up or you didn't give it up, I don't care. You're not a Christian. So now with that in mind, let me just read this again so you're just not focused on the controversy. My brothers and sisters, if if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the errors of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. If you will bring a person back from wandering from the faith, whether it be from fatigue because they can't fight the good fight or from just being broken and hurt and life has just slammed them down and they no longer want anything to do with God or whether it be because they're sinning and they're getting further and further from God, which happens as we sin more and more. It gets easier to take steps away from God. If you will bring them back, then you will literally save them and you will help them get out of sin. You see, this isn't a big deal to God and the heart of God because he wants some rules in place that you feel uncomfortable about. It's not like God's like, here's my plan. Make it super uncomfortable. That's what I want church to be. God understands that we have a tendency to wander. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We sing that. We have that tendency. We want to drift away from God because of our flesh, because of the world, because of Satan. James says right here at the end, the person who stops that has saved them. And we've seen already, James has said, you can stop that by having a relationship with people where they can confess sin to you and you can pray for them and vice versa. I think there's great application here to the non-Christian too. I mean, we look around at people in the world and if non-Christians know that we're for them and we're praying for them, We could help them. We could help save them. I mean, God can save them because we have chosen, a righteous person has chosen to devote themselves to prayer. We have this board right here of a list of names of people who are not Christians. And I hope you pray for those names all the time because the prayer of a righteous person availeth much as it said in the King James Version. I mean, in the short term, I mean, just the little things, like you can help a person stay in their marriage. I mean, how many people say like, you know, I'm just done or whatever. God just wants me to be happy. We hear that, but you could help with that. Or like, you know, it'll be more fun if I don't follow Jesus. You can stop somebody from turning their back on Jesus. Having fun is the most important thing in my life. I just want to be comfortable. You You can help 
You'll be in relationships that, that are deep and powerful and the, the, where the, both sides know that the other person is for them. You can help. Man, here, just, first of all, I said that this is about being different in prayer. And it is. It's different in prayer for several reasons. I'll just read them. It's different because it's in all times. It's different in that it's for others. It's different in that it knows the the sins of others or the problems in others' lives. It's different because it has power. In the non-Christian prayer life, it means nothing. I pray and stuff. It doesn't matter if you pray and stuff. Stop praying. Go read. Do something different. But we have power, and it's different because it matters in eternity. And I think like your prayers and how they sound, what does it sound like? Sound like, God, thanks for this and help me with that? Or does it sound like, man, I had a conversation with Chad today and he, God, he expressed to me that he's struggling with this thing. And so I approach you now on his behalf because that is not what you want for him. And, and, I, and I want him to come out of that and I want him to be able to get through this or I want him to be able to feel the healing that you can bring into his life and and I want to make sure that he is he is coming closer to you and not moving further away from you and, and so God just help him with that and does it sound like that or does it sound like God I could use a hundred more dollars this month not that that's unimportant but if that's the only part of your prayer life then you're not praying like a Christian you're praying like everybody else and so the, the call today, the challenge today is for you to be different in your prayers, but it's going to take like some steps to get there. You need to go to people. You need to be with people. You need to have relationships where both parties know that you're for people. And then you need to take the time to pray. And then your prayers will be different. Here's the easy challenge this week. Those are big challenges, and maybe that's just so far out of your personality. I mean, I don't know, but the, the, the small challenge for this week is I want you to take 10 minutes, 10 minutes, prayer time, and I want you to pray eternal things for other people. 10 minutes, eternal things, not God, let them have a new car. It's not eternal. We're not going to have a car someday. You can pray that too, but I want you to spend 10 minutes praying eternal things for other people. Will you pray with me right now? Lord, thank you for this passage of scripture. And as a pastor, Lord, it just feels so right. It feels so important. And, and it's there in your word so that I don't have to try to talk people into it. They can just choose whether to be obedient to you or not, Lord. Um, and I pray that they would choose obedience. God, I know that this, this sermon is going to fall differently on different people. God, it's going to for some people, hopefully, God, uh, if you move right now, it, it, for some people, it will just compel them to pray in all circumstances. Um, for other people, Lord, it, it will compel them to make a godly friend, uh, to build a spiritual relationship with somebody else in our congregation. And that's going to be scary for a lot of people, Lord, to, to take those steps. That's hard for a lot of people, but I pray they would do it, Lord. For, for others in our church, Lord, it's really just going to be about changing the perspective of prayer and, and realizing that in their prayers, if they, are, if they are trying to live for you, God, then, then in their prayers there is power and in their prayers there is, there is really uh, the weight of eternity. And, and so whatever, God, you need to do in, in our hearts this morning, Lord, I pray that you would do. Lord, I pray that you would touch each of us in the way that we need to be touched this morning, God. So that we leave this place with just a, a radically different perspective. And, and so, God, when we gather here next week, our church is better. Because this really is a church passage, God. It's not an individual passage. It's impossible to, to confess sins to ourselves, Lord. And so I pray that, that you would do that, Lord. I pray these things in your name. Amen.